Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Greetings, space monkeys, crazy diamonds. You are back. I'm back behind the mic for a solo podcast. I'll try not to sing too much. A few things on the agenda for today. First, I'll give you a brief update on my Steamboat Gravel experience, otherwise known as SBTGRLVVL. I don't know. I can't spell words without vowels, but apparently vowels are so 2001. And then I'm going to tell you what to do which isn't normally how I do things. I don't like to tell people what to do, but I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you some prerogatives, some imperatives. But don't worry, I'll do it with love. So here we go. Did Steamboat, went well, got third in the 50 plus slash 1 million old guy race. Wrinkly people. Woo! And... That was cool. It was a good race. It was a fun experience, but I wanted to just highlight a few bits and bops because I did have some people mention that they enjoyed my unbound redux or post unbound thoughts. And I applied a lot of the same methodologies going into Steamboat. That is, I did the things that I normally do. I ate a lot in the two days running into the race. I cleared my calendar. I did my best to relax. But for context, I went into Steamboat a little bit tired and I did something that was perhaps a bit unusual uh, in terms of training. I swung the pendulum maybe a little too hard in both directions. And I managed to course correct on that for the most part. And in, in the end, the race came out okay. But I just wanted to share my experience and hopefully it's useful for all of you. So the weekend before Steamboat, I went on a meditation retreat. So Saturday and Sunday, I did not ride my bike at all seven days before the race. And this is an unusual tactic. This is risky. Most people would not do that. In fact, aside from 
maybe a handful of people who were traveling or sick or had some unusual life or circumstances the week before Steamboat. I would say probably just about nobody didn't ride their bike the Saturday and Sunday, seven days before the race. But that's what I did. And I won't go into details about the retreat, but suffice it to say that I did not get a lot of sleep. There's not a lot of sleep involved in this type of activity. Also, there's a pretty restrictive diet and that's in preparation for the work you do. So I went into Steamboat a bit lean, which maybe is good, assuming that I can refuel myself for the race, right? So I did my best to do that, and I rode Monday through Friday. I think the race was on Saturday. I think I'm wrong. The race was Sunday. I rode all, I rode six days before Steamboat. So that's enough bike riding, right? And I've been riding my bike for 35 years, so you figure it'll all work out. And it did. But I perhaps rode a little more than I should have and with a bit more intensity than I should have the week of the race, given that I took those two days off. And being on the diet for a week prior to the retreat also impacts training. It meant that the cumulative load of my training from 14 days to seven days out was very light, because when you're on a really restrictive diet, you don't have a lot of energy to train. So I was riding, but I wasn't doing a lot of intensity. I wasn't pushing it real deep. wasn't really tuning things, which isn't really in line with a typical taper, at least not according to Mujica, who's sort of the guy that I know of who studied tapers the most. And his philosophy in general, for the record, is you would cut volume by 20 to 50%. In the final seven to 14 days before your peak race, depending on context and the adventure type ring for and how much volume you have in your program. If you're not a high volume rider, then you wouldn't cut it by 50% because then you'll be flat. So you have to interpret it based on, on what, where you're at as a rider. But the basics are first you cut your volume by, we'll say 20 to 50%. You reduce the volume of intensity, but you maintain or increase the intensity of your sharp intervals, your efforts. And that's to keep the body open, keep the muscles firing, keep the energy systems awake. Cycling is a sport of momentum. So you really want to keep energy systems active. Less so for something like a gravel race, but it's still important. More so for something like a time trial or especially a short time trial. The shorter and harder the effort is and the more immediate the effort off the line is, the more open you have to be, the more activated your system has to be. So there's this delicate balance of doing enough work to keep your body open, to keep your muscles supple and loose and keep your blood volume high enough, which happens with training and intensity, especially in heat. There's a balance there between those characteristics and being fatigued. You don't want to go to the line fatigued. So there's this trade-off. There's this sliding scale, which happens everywhere in life with pretty much everything. Very few things are actually true polar polarities. Most of them are false dichotomies. So my polarities were perhaps a bit extreme because I really trained very little from days 14 to seven to go and then trained none from days six to seven to go. And then I may have ramped up a little bit more than I ought to have in retrospect, given the, the benefit of the rearview mirror. Hindsight is 2020, as they say. And so I went into the race just a little overstimulated. A few other things contributed to that program. I did hit the sauna once that week. It was pretty hot, but one day it wasn't that warm. 
So I hit the sauna once to try to get my blood volume up. I also did an ice bath. That was, I think, a good move. I did my regular regime of cold showers every morning, which I highly recommend, by the way. And I might do a whole pod on that at some point because it's really moved the dial for me. And I also probably just trained a little more than I ought to have, specifically intensity-wise. I also gave myself a sunburn on Monday. That was kind of a dumbass move and not something that's typical for me. I have a pretty good sun callus going, but I sat outside. It was the perfect temperature for a little too long and I was working on my computer. I took my shirt off and got a little fried on my backside. So not my backside, not my ass, my, my back. In any case, all those things serve to stimulate the body and we'll say uh, potentially injure the energy system or ding your chi, right? This is what we're trying to do is before a race of the caliber of unbound or steamboat or anything really hard and challenging, you want to, you want to fire up the battery as much as possible. And that's not just in terms of calories. It's everything, right? It's all stimulus. So one thing that's probably not apparent to amateurs is how good professional bike racers are at doing nothing. They're astounding at doing nothing. And the reason they're good at that is because it's a necessary skill for them to do everything when they get on the bike in a race during a peak moment or a really challenging moment where they have to turn themselves absolutely inside out. So this is the same concept as hypertonicity in muscles. When you have a chronically sore back or neck, neck is a good example. A lot of people get neck tension, maybe in their traps, their upper traps, right? Which a lot of people would call your, your upper shoulder or your, into your neck area. That's, that's your trap or your levator scapula. These muscles are commonly firing a little too much all the time. This is a hypertonic muscle. So if we imagine that a muscle can fire at 100%, every fiber can be contracted maximally maybe only for a few seconds. I'm talking really, really maximal contraction, like you're lifting a car off of a small child, that kind of contraction to save the child's life versus 0% contraction, zero complete relaxation of the muscle, total flaccidity. This would be almost no electrical activity. And technically speaking, this is impossible unless you're dead. There's always some electrical activity in the muscles. That's life force running through you. That's chi, that's energy. So, but hypothetically we could have, okay, 0.5% would be our, our practical zero and 99% would be our practical lifting a car off a child. And then there's all phases in between. Now a healthy muscle can go from very close to zero to very close to 100% at will. The person can contract their traps to lift whatever they're going to lift, a refrigerator or a really, heli, he, a really heavy television or a car of a child, uh, a squirming dog to put them in the car to go to the vet, right? And maybe you need maximal contraction for that, or maybe you need 79% or 54% or whatever. And this is a healthy muscle. It responds to the load. A hypertonic muscle is always contracted at some lower percentage, 21%, 18%, 16%, 33%. And 
this leads to problems. It leads to challenges. The hypertonic muscle is simultaneously fatigued because it's basically always on. It's firing. It's idle speed, we'll say, is too high. When we want muscles off, we want them to completely relax. This is one of the biggest benefits of deep meditation is you're conscious, you're awake, but you're allowing your muscles to completely relax while you're conscious, not just passed out because you drank a bottle of wine. And which is not really restful sleep, by the way. Also, hypertonic muscle is simultaneously weak because when it's always on at 18% or 22%, it becomes difficult to achieve 99% because the muscle sort of gets trapped in that firing pattern. Another way to look at this is pattern interference. And the reason I'm expanding on this whole idea is both for the purposes of analogy and also to uh, have a prelude to my discussion on me telling you what to do. Uh, they all go together. So when an athlete is really tuned into their event and they feel this deep effort coming, this massive race day performance, and they're building towards this race, the experienced athlete will squirrel away every bit of energy they can in the previous days, even the previous week. This is what I mean when I say world-class athletes are world-class at doing nothing. When they're racing a lot or when they are under high training load, the time that they're not doing those efforts is very minimal effort. They can lay on the couch and lay around and do nothing like you wouldn't believe. And you might sort of pass judgment on them if you didn't understand this paradigm, but what they're doing is living in polarities. They're saving energy. They're culling energy and chi so that they can make maximal effort on the bike. That's their strategy. They're probably maybe they're conscious of it. Well, often they're probably not. I had one of my young riders recently comment to me on this. He hung out with some Dutch guys. He was like, wow, I can't believe how much nothing they do. And I'm around running around doing all these errands and all this busybody work. And they're just doing nothing. And it took him a while to figure that out. He realized kind of what was going on. And it was a big eye opener for him. So this is the same paradigm that I was attempting to actualize heading into steamboat. I was balancing the polarities of me not riding over the weekend and doing enough riding to sort of prepare my body and wake up my body to make sure that I could perform, but also trying not to do too much and maximizing rest. Well, so I drove to steamboat on Thursday with one of my athletes and we got there two days in advance, which was really nice. And I realized I was pretty smoked. I just was feeling really tired when I got in the car. And that was a moment of attention. So I made a real effort to get extra rest every minute I could. In those last few days, I rode minimum effective dose. We had a POC times EF coaching pre-ride on Saturday, just as we've done before the other events. And that went great, but I was not doing any efforts. I wasn't pushing it. I wasn't wasn't doing anything crazy, was not adding volume onto that ride. It was like, get the ride done, run a couple errands on the bike, get my number, go back to the condo. And I took an hour and a half nap the day before the race, which is not super common for me. Then I went to sleep as early as I could. Woke up for race day feeling good. I think our start was at 6.30, so we were up by 4.42 or something like that. Drank my coffee right away. 
ate a light breakfast, headed down to the start. Uh, my athlete and I did some Qigong and some activation before we got on the bike, briefly rolling around on the carpet, doing some hip openers and things. That also plays into the part of the podcast where I'm going to tell you what to do. And off I went. Now, interesting race report. I'll try to keep this brief. I know you don't want to hear me talk about all the nuance and details of my race. However, there are a few interesting points. I felt not great for the first 45 minutes. And I was found myself actually getting dropped pretty early from the main peloton, which was quickly coming to pieces. And I wasn't feeling amazing. I felt like I just wasn't pushing great power. I, I'll note that I wasn't observing this on my head unit. I rarely look at my head unit or my power during races. Sometimes when things settle, I do, but not that often. More often, I'm looking at heart rate and checking distance and time. Time helps me touch base with how much food I'm eating and how much fluid I'm taking in. Also just gives me context. It gives me orientation. Where am I? I've been racing for three and a half hours. That means based on last year's finish time, I've got about four hours to go ish, a little less. Okay, cool. So then that helps me have a mental map of how much food is left in my pockets, where the rest stops are, and I can begin to formulate a strategy. I started this race with three bottles, two big bottles on the bike and one small one in my pocket. And I figured I'd probably stop about twice for water, but that didn't quite end up happening. So got going in the race, started to get dropped pretty early. Then the field was in pieces quite quickly, well before the first big climb. And I just picking my way through the group and I started to pass people and feeling better. seems like people sort of went nuts and then blew up and I was starting to pick them off already. And passing people on downhills and in technical sections, I'll say that I tend to be among the faster riders going around a corner in a gravel race in my experience. It's very infrequent that I follow someone into a corner and they put a gap on me. I'm not trying to blow sunshine on my skirt. I'm just making an observation. And then I found myself in a pretty big group. I don't know, maybe 30, 40 riders. And I was in that group for a big portion of the day. And I looked around and realized there were a couple of the elite women in that group who were probably racing for the win. And then I started thinking, well, this is interesting. If Tiffany Cromwell's in this group and Ruth Wenders in this group, who's up ahead? And so I spoke to them and spoke to some other racers and started to figure out what was going on. And then I realized that I was actually in a pretty strong group even though I'd gotten dropped early. So that shaped a different characteristic to the race than had happened in the past. Uh, the previous year, I was with the leaders two and a half hours into the race. In fact, I went and said hi to Nathan just before the first big climb. Then I, then the group came to pieces and I got shelled. Uh, but the point is I was with the leaders a lot longer last year. So it was a very different race. Okay, fine. So then we're doing our thing and I'm surviving and eating and I'm feeling quite good and feeling like the pressure isn't too much. And I'm just prolling through in the group and contributing now and again and sort of saving myself for the last big climb because I know that thing is pretty big. And there's then a couple stingers after that. And we came to the rest stop at the bottom of the second climb. And I was almost completely out of water and probably had, I think at that point, you got about two, two and a half hours of racing left. So I was definitely stopping. And to my surprise, Tiffany did not stop. And that was it. I never saw her again. She beat me by a few minutes. That woman must be part camel. 
because she started the brace, if I'm not mistaken, with two bottles and a small camelback. And that was it. So good for her. I don't think I'm capable of doing that. I stopped there. I took two Cokes, filled both bottles, and I drank almost all that by the time I got to the line. So I'm not quite as camel, apparently, as that Australian woman is. And some other riders did almost as little fluids as she did. I don't know. People have to manage their own fluid strategy during these races, and some people probably can get away with less than others. In any case, I felt great on the second long climb. Energy was good, eating well, having some gels. I ate a lot of never second products. I, I really think that they are good for race day. Had one of their bars, which was hard to get down. A little bit of solid food. I think I had some Enduro bites. That's my kind of real food that I'll sneak a couple of those in now and again. And you have to be careful with those when you're going hard because they're great for training, for racing. They can be a little heavy, especially if it's hot. And it wasn't too hot for the 142 mile steamboat race this year until the last about hour and a half. Then the sun came out the first, most of the first part of the race, we were blessed with these high clouds and that kept the sun from being too intense. I mean, it certainly wasn't chilly. Uh, it was warm, but it wasn't smoking hot. So that was a gift. And then we, I went through the the same rest stop at the bottom of the Oak Creek climb, I believe it's called, grabbed another Coke really quickly, kept it rolling, was picking off riders and feeling strong. And then I hit a huge wall with about an hour to go. I really just dropped anchor. And it wasn't a fatigue thing. I didn't have any cramps or localized muscle pain. It just felt like the engine room just shut down and I'd eaten quite a few calories at that point. So I'm not really sure what happened there. Uh, it's possible that I just hit the limit of what I could do in terms of my intensity for the day. Cause I would say I pushed pretty hard up the Oak Creek climb. And in a few of the subsequent climbs after that, I went pretty good. I felt good. So I was, I was going pretty good and I was sort of going through riders. I was dropping riders on climbs and going through them, even on descents and stuff, just sort of making my way uh, through through riders that I had been with who had come out of that second rest stop or sorry, the, the pre-Oak Creek rest stop faster than me because I stopped to fill two bottles and I peed. So I lost a couple, um, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes there. So I was coming through all those riders that were in the group that had left that rest stop ahead of me. And, but then I hit the wall on this paved climb heading back towards town before cow Creek. And I just was crawling on that thing. And that was where one, uh, rider dropped me and he went on to catch the guy who was winning in our category and they sprinted for first and second. So the victory was right there, but I was not capable of riding to that speed on the day. And so be it. You know, I don't go to these races to, to win or to prove anything or to smash people or push myself. I've already pushed myself for 35 years. I'm pretty sure I know what my body does when I go fast on a bike and I still enjoy it. Otherwise I wouldn't do it. Really this type of race is about me getting out there to represent team EF coaching and have the experience of racing. It's about the social aspects, seeing the people being part of the race, being part of the event that's enjoyable to me. It's also about being a coach and still being in a competitive environment. I think there's value in that. I won't say that every coach must race. 
especially if they've raced for a long time. However, for me, there's value in it because when I do prescribe a five-hour ride with two by 20 or whatever I'm giving my client, if I've gone out and ridden my bike for five hours, I'm, I'm not, let's be real. I'm not doing two by 20 anymore. That's not, I'm not training per se. I do hard efforts in rides at times, but it's very organic. It's very, it has to feel right. So I'm not, I'm not following any rigid training plan anymore, but that disclaimer aside, when I go out for a five hour ride and I do some hard efforts or whatever, I come home and I remember the impact of that on my body. I remember what it was like to train hard and be invested in these efforts. And that helps me keep the pulse on what it means for me to prescribe hard efforts to my clients because it's a lot of time and effort and it's a big investment in your dream and your goal. So that's one of the benefits of me competing in these races. Also, I, for me, this is sort of proof of concept. You know, I'm living my life in a very different way than I was as an athlete. And so as a 51 year old guy to show up to a 142 mile bike race on an average of, I don't know, I'd have to look probably nine or 10 hours of training a week for the last year and fake my way to get third and then win the hundred mile race at unbound. For me, it shows me that I'm on the right track and maybe it demonstrates to some of my clients that I'm on the right track, which is prioritizing global holistic health over chasing watts or marginal gains, which are all the rage right now. I do not ride my bike indoors. I do not swift. I do not eat processed food. I don't drink Coca-Cola except during a steamboat bike race. There are a lot of things that bike racers do that I don't do. And I'm not saying my way is right. What I'll say is that my choices are right for me and they're not necessarily conventional. They're not orthodox. They're not following what most people would consider standard and I'm having success. Now we have to acknowledge that I have some things on my side. I've got certainly have old man strengths. I'm old. I don't know how strong I am, but, uh, we'll say that I've been racing for 35 years and I was a pro for 15. That gives me some, some sort of Peloton navigation skills that some people can never have because you only gain some of those through years of being in the Peloton. I also, along with those skills that comes the ability to hide and conserve momentum. And so, you know, back to my discussion about, or my point about riders doing nothing and being efficient. Well, one of the metrics that Dr. Alan Lim used to track in professional riders during races was how much time they spent coasting. Now, if this is news to you, then, okay, here's your learning point for the pod. You might be under the impression that having a high average power in a bike race is cool or a good thing or something to talk about or even a goal to achieve. And this is not the case. What matters in bike races is the place you get, not how much power you produce. And most of the time, when you produce less average power, time trials are the exception. Most of the time, when you produce less average power, assuming that you're competitive, then that's a good thing. That means you conserved more energy than your peers. You saved more right? And if you coast, if you do a road race and you coast for 42% of the duration and then still place in the top five and everyone else co coasted for only 18% of the duration, you were more efficient than they were by definition, at least by that lens, right? Now, maybe you wasted more time when you were pedaling hard. We'd have to get more nuanced and 
discover more about how you moved up in the Peloton and where you used your Watts in order to really discern that. But conceptually, you get my point. So I have some efficiency on my side. Also, Steamboat suits me pretty well. Not as well as Unbound, honestly. On the long climbs, I tend to get dumped. This year, I didn't. I got dropped in other places on the course. And I'll say last year, I think I got dropped probably 22 times and still managed to get in the top three of the 50 plus. This year, I got dropped twice and managed to get top three in the 50 plus. I also went faster this year in terms of time, which was interesting. So for whatever that's all worth, I guess the big takeaways were I felt like crap in the first half hour, 45 minutes of the race. And that suggests to me that I actually probably need a little bit, needed a little bit more of an opener on Saturday. Just one five minute effort of tempo and then maybe a little zinger at the end, maybe a couple jumps because it took my body just a little too long to get going, I would say. By the time we turned in the dirt and I was on there, the first couple little mini small climbs, I just wasn't going. I, I felt like I couldn't quite push. Then I opened up and then I was going right through riders left, right, and center. So that suggests to me I wasn't quite open. So if you have this kind of rhythm change and you're noticing it relative to your peer group, that's what's, that's what's essential to figure out, then you may adjust your pre-race strategy a bit, right? Clearly in a race that's seven hours long, or well, it was for me, it was seven hours and 10 minutes, I think, or something thereabouts, 15 minutes, you know, up to 12 hours for some people, you don't want to do too many openers the day before. However, we also have to consider that your start and the first half hour of the race can have a big impact on what group you're in for the rest of the day, right? So if a race starts off in a quite technical fashion or with some elevation change, you're going to need to go fast up those first hills. And that dictates a lot of the, the character of the race you'll have for the rest of the day. A really good example of that would be Leadville, which I haven't done for several years, but Leadville starts off with a downhill air quotes, neutral section behind a car, which is actually quite fast because they're trying to kind of keep it strung out because you've got 2000 riders on mountain bikes. And if you go too slow, people get nervous and move up and then their handlebars touch. And then you've got big crashes happening. So they try to scooch it along. So you're going like 32 miles an hour down a false flat downhill. And then you turn onto these little farm roads and then you go on a climb that I, if I remember right, it was like a 10 minute climb, maybe less. And positioning for that climb is obviously crucial because it's a double track climb. You got 2000 riders on it. So once you're more than about 250 deep, you're walking. And then you're walking for 15 minutes. The road is completely clogged with riders. And then that has a massive impact on how you can ride the rest of the day. If you lose five minutes there, 10 minutes there, and you're in a group full of yahoos, then you're stuck with those people for a while until you drop them all in the descent and you're going through groups or whatever, or on the climb, et cetera, et cetera. So point being is that depending on the start of your race, you may need to ride aggressively. And you may need to have the legs be open for that. We can't save everything for the last hour because by the last hour, often the race is over. Now, in my case, it ended because I got dropped. So looking at the terrain of your race is important. And basing your strategy on that terrain is significant because you know that during selective parts of the race, whatever those are, whether it's a technical section or a climb or a really technical descent, you know that the Peloton will be culled there. And if you're in a poor position 
during that culling, then you're behind riders who are less fast than you during whatever section is challenging the athletes. You're going to not be able to perform at your speed. Sometimes that's unavoidable and you just have to be patient and wait and get around people when you can. Uh, mountain bikes, courses with single track being the best example. So there's my, my steamboat recap. I could have used a little more tune-up, probably. Just a touch, maybe one effort to activate. But I don't know that that would have made a massive difference in the end for me. And I still haven't quite ironed out why I got so dumped on that final climb or last two climbs, really, it was. There was a paved climb and then there's a final climb before Cow Creek. That dirt climb, I went dreadfully slow up that. I was felt like I was dragging three tree stumps behind my bike. I just couldn't move at all. And I had eaten a lot at that point, and I had eaten just before those sections. So I don't really have an explanation. It could be that simply the fatigue of the previous week caught up with me, and my body was not able to produce any more output. So in any case, I'm happy with my ride. It was fun. Had a good time hanging out with the pot crew, and hopefully you had a good race too if you did it. That's enough of Steamboat. So two big things on my to-do list for you. Again, to reiterate, I don't really like to tell people what to do because it's not up to me to tell other people how to live their lives, right? It's just like in Hot Rod when Danny McBride sprays the other guy in the face and says, man, don't you ever tell me how to live my life. However, I'm going to break that rule because rules are meant to be broken. And I'm going to say two things. One, I was considering doing a short pod on this whole topic, but I'm just going to bust it out and get it over with. You must be nice to each other. We must remember the golden rule. What is the golden rule? I will say it in case you forgot. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Recently, I've had several experiences in society at large, in Boulder where I live and in other places too. And I'm careful to say this because I do believe that we create our own reality through our perceptions to a large degree. This is correct. So I don't want to influence your perception of things with my experience. And I'm also cautious to interpret my own experience. But all that aside, what I see is people who are at their emotional limit. I see people who are frustrated, fed up, angry, and intolerant. The level of intolerance right now seems to be very high. Now, this isn't everywhere. It's not all the time. I also see acts of kindness. I see acts of unsolicited grace and care and love. I see acts of consideration and politeness and respect. I see these too. However, when I do encounter hostile interactions or situations, it's frequent that the people involved have almost a new level of escalation in their energy. It's as if they are feeling justified, fully justified in their anger or frustration. And now is the moment when they are going to express all these feelings and they disregard the courtesy or respect that is due to another human being. They forget that they're people. They forget that they have rights or feelings or needs, and they drop all the bombs and do all the things and lose it, like really lose it. 
it's like first chakra, you are threatening my life. I'm going to rip your throat out kind of energy. And this is unacceptable. This is incorrect. I really invite you to look at yourself and consider if you have these own feelings in your own energy, your own body, your own psyche. We've been through a lot as a society in the last four years, like more than anyone could have predicted, except, well, without letting religion and politics through the door into the dinner table, except for the people who planned it. <laughs> but that little conspiracy theory aside, no one could have told us what we were going to go through. No one could have predicted that. No, I didn't hear any soothsayers prognosticating about these events. Or if I did, I missed it. But certainly the average man and woman had no idea. And so we have to consider that so many people have been through so much challenge. This is the moment. So let me just describe an example and hopefully this will help glue these concepts together. Then we'll move on. You're driving. You're doing your thing, driving down the road. You get on Broadway or Main Street, whatever. You're going the speed limit and you're using your turn signals and you're stopping at red lights and all the things. And then you see someone pull a traffic offense that is flagrant and obnoxious and seemingly without regard for personal or safety or safety of others. I've seen this several times in the last few months. People just blow through stop signs, not because they're looking at their phones, not because they didn't notice the stop sign. They actually go through the stop sign with both middle fingers up and they're just feeling, I suppose, justified. Like so angry and upset with society and culture and what's happening that they just have lost all the capacity to give any fucks. Pardon my French. I went shopping for some fucks. I looked for some fucks to buy. There's some song about that that I saw somewhere on Instagram recently. It was pretty funny. It was about the number of fucks you could buy with zero. Anyway, so... When we see this, we have to remember, we must, this is the part where I'm telling you what to do, which I, makes me slightly uncomfortable, but I feel it is necessary. We must take a moment to have compassion for these people, whether they go through the stop sign with both middle fingers or they do it because they're not paying attention, they're zoned out, or they're so stressed that they missed it. They missed the red light and they go right through it and nearly cause an accident. Why would you, why do you, why Colby, why do we need to have compassion for these people? The reason is simple. When you see someone else in a car, they're not a human. They're just some other a-hole driving a car, but they're not. They're people just like you and I are. They have moms and dads and siblings and children. And for all we know, one of those children just ended up in the hospital or for all we know, they just found their spouse is cheating on them. For all we know, they just were notified that they are being audited. We have no idea what other people's stress is. For all we know, their doctor has misprescribed them medications and it's making them psychotic. This stuff happens all the time. A shocking number of people that you see when you're out in public are dealing with these types of challenges. And I want to be crystal clear, I'm not excusing anyone's behavior. Someone runs a red light in their car, they should get a ticket or go to jail. And if they cause an accident, then they definitely need to have legal repercussions and policemen need to come and do the things. 
that's not, I'm not suggesting that we all just get in a cuddle puddle and, you know, kumbaya it out. These are real problems that need to be addressed and boundaries are important. You need to have an impenetrable energy shield around you that prevents you from leaking too much energy into these situations and becoming too upset when you witness it or if someone engages you. So this is the technique is to remain centered and calm. And you can ask yourself, what would love do right now? What is this person's unmet need? These are some of Paul's teachings. And they're just his techniques on how to approach it. Maybe it's not the best technique for you, but consider it, please. Because we have to find more compassion for these people. Otherwise, chaos erupts and everyone feels justified in doing everything they want. And we live in a world where there are there's more meth than ever and more brazen thievery than ever. And every day you read the news and it's like, holy crap, I can't believe people are pulling this off and they have the balls to do this. And it's just an indication of how desperate people are in the world to try to steal from each other or do all the other terrible things they do to each other. We have to be the centered people who hold our ground and remain calm and do not get sucked into that energy. We have to be the examples, the good people, the people who do not explode when the other person completely loses it on you. You remain calm and let them have their moment without harming you or anyone else. If harm is in the picture, that's a different story. You have to act to protect yourself or your family or other people. That's obviously required. And, but this type of behavior cannot be tolerated. And I'm not saying go be Batman and perform vigilante justice. What I'm saying is when someone else loses their shit, you need to be the centered one. Also the compassionate one. And there's a time to hold boundaries and there's a time to be compassionate. But this is the firm line you must draw because this mentality cannot spread. It's intolerable. It's incorrect. These people who have lost it this much and feel justified, they need healing space. But first, they need to understand that what they're doing is not okay. They're children throwing a tantrum. So you are the centered adult. They are the child. Because that's how they're behaving. So you see one, someone throw a tantrum, treat them like a child. And a real tantrum requires a timeout. So there you go. I, I hope that all made sense. Um, that's been bouncing around in my head a lot recently because I've seen a lot of things that have been a bit disturbing. Okay, good. Here's the next thing you need to do. I'm going to keep telling you what to do. And there's my song for the night. Your task as a cyclist is to move. And I don't mean riding your bike. So the message that I've been getting, what conversation do we want to be having? What do we see in the world? Right now, what I see is a lot of athletes coming through my door at the Fit Studio who have chronic things, chronic pain or discomfort. And I have to explain to them, okay, there are two columns that we can use to describe the origin of your discomfort. Column A, column B. Column A is bike fit related. Saddle height, type of saddle, 
shoes too small, shoes too narrow, wrong or incorrect cleat position, incorrect handlebar width, incorrect brake lever position, et cetera, et cetera. Saddle nose angle, all those details. And I would say the majority of my clients come to me expecting column A to be the solution to their problem because they signed up for a bike fit. And this is not frequently the case in my experience, which is why I'm going to be making some changes to my bike fitting services starting this fall. I'm not really going to offer bike fitting anymore. I'm going to offer integrative bicycle fit because all fit has to be integrative in my opinion. And I will go so far as to say anyone who is not performing bike fit that does not have some integrative aspect is only doing half the job or less. So in column B, we have everything that is a physiological outcome of the status of the rider. Most commonly limitations in mobility and tightness or hyperfacilitation of either tonic more commonly tonic, but sometimes phasic muscles. So we have restriction of joints, not enough mobility, and then we have tight muscles. These are the dominant themes. Now, that's the physiological outcome. Rather, actually, I would say that's the biomechanical outcome. But if we consider the whole physiology of the athlete, as well as the psychology of the athlete, we understand that psychology can play a role in biomechanics, a large role. And many bike fitters don't quite get this, which is fine. I'm still learning it myself, but we have to acknowledge that it's the case. So when someone has a particular aptitude, that aptitude manifests in certain physical realities, which goes back to what I was saying earlier. We create our own reality. Basically, I'm just saying what Yoda said, which is your focus determines your reality. So just go watch more Star Wars, dude, and you'll understand bike fitting. That's pretty much what I'm saying. And I mean, think about it. So not the really campy movies though. Well, actually they were all campy. Let's stick more with Rogue One or the original three. That's a safe playground. So what I want to highlight and magnify, zoom in on, is the idea that we, our perception really paints what we see in the world. And also begins to build our body. We are constantly manifesting the physical outcome of our body through the lens of our perception. In every millisecond, we do this. So your soul occupies your body and this leads to a physical manifestation of what your soul is bringing to life. This is not the way most Western people think, but I am 100% convinced this is correct. This is correct. You are manifesting your physical body. In the Western world, we think of the body as just this thing that we occupy, this suit, this meat suit. And it's got certain characteristics. It's got this hair and these eyes and these muscles. And we wish it had more muscle here and less muscle there and less of a fat ass there and maybe a little less flab here and maybe slightly different color skin here, etc., etc less pimples there, blah, blah, blah. But you are making this outcome. You are responsible for this outcome 100%. And when you accept that fact, then you begin to look at awe and wonder in the thing that you are making. The way you are running this mobile house that your soul lives in 
as you walk through the world that your life force occupies. And perhaps you begin to see athletics and sports through a different lens. Maybe not. I'm not here to tell you how to see things. So back to what to do. You have to move. And you are moving because you're probably a cyclist if you're listening to this podcast. And you're moving in a way that causes some of these biomechanical maladaptations, poor movement patterns, pattern interference, adaptive muscle shortening. What am I talking about? When you're on a bike, unless your saddle is dreadfully too high, which I have seen, your knee does not fully extend. Orientation landmarks, flexion and extension. Flexion is towards the fetal position. So when you crawl up into the fetal position, your knees bend, right? Your heel comes towards your butt. That's flexion. Extension is when your leg goes towards straight. Make sense? So flexion is when the spine curls towards that fetal position. Your chin goes towards your knees. Extension would be the opposite, like when you're doing a bridge or a wheel pose in yoga, I believe it's called, or when you lay over a stability ball with your belly pointed up towards the ceiling or the sky. That would be spinal extension. Also, we can think of it as flexion moving towards the fetal position, or the opposite is supination, which is when a waiter holds a can of soup. So if you think about the arm supinating and you hold up a can of soup or a glass of fine wine, think about the way your hand must point with the palm facing up towards the ceiling. That is supination. External rotation of the shoulder. So just some basic anatomical landmarks there. And when we ride a bike, as I've talked about in some of my other podcasts, we tend to foster upper cross syndrome or symptoms of this. This is a pronated shoulder or a flexed shoulder, right? A flexed upper spine, thoracic spine. That's the spine which is between the 12th rib and the first rib. And when it has too much flexion, then you hunch forward in standing like the hunchback of Notre Dame or like Mr. Burns. That's a Simpsons reference. Also notice that Mr. Burns has an extended neck. His neck cranes forward like a kind of like a goose, I guess, right? And that is called forward head carriage. And when your head is pushed out forward of your torso, that puts a lot of stress and potentially hypertonicity into the neck extensor muscles. So those muscles have to always be on. Why? Because imagine the weight of your head being weighed out in front of your body. And if those muscles weren't taut, your head would just fall forward and your chin would bang into your chest. But that doesn't work very well for us to do things like walk around and see and buy groceries and ride bikes. So those neck muscles just fire all the time. So cycling causes a lot of these challenges in the human body. It's an amazing sport that allows us to connect with nature and other people and ourselves in many ways. And it also causes a lot of dysfunction in the human body. So we have to counterbalance this. So here is what you must do. You must move every day. And at a minimum, you must do things that offset your cycling postural compensations or movement patterns. So I would say every day that you ride your bike, you need to do a few things. And this is very generic advice, but I think it's safe to say that just about every cyclist will benefit from this. Now, 
because you're listening to this on a podcast, I'll take a page from Lee Weiland and say, don't confuse this with actual coaching or one-on-one advice. This is just some things to think about and go try for yourself. But the real way to actually improve your chronic pain or adaptive movement patterns that you've acquired through so much cycling is to work with a coach who can actually do an assessment of you and see where you're at and what you need. However, it's safe to say that every cyclist should or ought to, I don't like the word should very much, those of you who have been listening to my pod for a while, you'll know that, perform at least a few basic movements each day. Now, I'll call these movements not necessarily stretches and not necessarily exercises. They're more like mobilizations. And the reason is because I do believe that the optimal solution for most cyclists is to use strength and conditioning or off the bike movement to condition their body to be more durable, not actually to gain more strength. So for those of you who are freaks of nature and have great skeletal alignment and good muscle length tension relationships, even though you ride a bike quite a bit, you might be able to go to the gym and bang out a bunch of squats and bang out a bunch of deadlifts. But for those of you who are the majority of the belt curve, who ride their bikes a lot, or even some, or even not that much, and still end up with these postural compensations or poor postural habits and cycling specific movement patterns or muscle length tension implications. Those are all kind of the same way to say the same thing, different ways to say the same thing. You need to move off the bike in specific ways. And I'll say there are a few really essential exercises, and then there are a few that need to be done at least weekly. But for the essential ones, I would say you need to do these every day that you ride. There's the challenge. So if you ride your bike one hour, you need to do these exercises. If you ride your bike five hours, you need to do these exercises. These exercises are a neck extensor stretch series, a prone cobra, an anterior hip series, and you need to stretch the diaphragm. These are the big ones. Mm. And I'm going to add to that. I'm looking at my list right now. You need to work the hips, not just the anterior hips, but also the posterior hips. What? No hamstrings? No quads? Well, quads will be included in the hips. Don't you worry, young soldier. So I'm just going to give you a, a list of what I think is important. I'll describe each of these briefly. And for those of you who are like, but where's my video? I like to watch things. Listening is hard. I would offer that, yes, we're in the day and age where people learn things through different means. And some of us have dug deep and found out, are we better visual learners or auditory learners or kinesthetic learners, or do we learn better in nature, et cetera, et cetera. And those are great things to know. And I would also offer that it is a skill for you to listen to my voice and understand that if I ask you to grab your right ankle with your right hand beginning in a standing position and pull your right heel to your right butt cheek that you should be able to visualize this and do it and watch yourself in a mirror and look for the cues I give you to make sure that we're getting the right movement in. Now, if my description sucks and you end up in some weird pretzel position, well, that's on me. Unpretzel yourself and then tag me on Instagram and tell me how much I suck. But if I describe things effectively and you can't figure it out, then 
that's also a learning opportunity. That said, I am working with the intent to build more YouTube content. It's going to take time. Uh, this is early September as of the recording of this podcast. And at the end of this month, I'm heading out to Rainbow, California for the final course in my Czech adventure at the Czech Academy taught at Paul's house. That's Czech IMS five integrated movement specialist level five. Not many people make it to that level. So that'll be pretty cool. It's sort of like a PhD. I have to submit a 10,000 word thesis after the class. And only then do I get my IMS five level certification. So I don't know, it's kind of a big deal to me. But until that moment, I'm sort of devoting most of my spare time or any extra time in air quotes to study and prepare for this course because I want to get the most out of it. And also I'm firmly expecting a pretty big ass kicking from Paul. So what I'm saying is YouTube content probably comes after that class is done and dusted. In any case, when we're talking about these movements, generally speaking, I'm referring to a contract, relax, stretch method. The basics of a contract, relax, stretch method are as follow. They're not, it's not a passive stretch, which is what most of you may think of in terms of gaining mobility, like a 30 or 60 second hamstring stretch or hurdle stretch or something like that forward bend. That's not what this is. An active contract, relax stretch is a different beast because it works the muscle under some tension and load at length. So simply put, if you're going to stretch your neck extensors, you can put your right hand on your skull above your left ear. You can sit upright in your chair with erect posture and a straight spine. You can pull your left shoulder away from your left ear that is down. And then you can tilt your head to the right. And as you tilt farther, you're going to start to feel some tension along your neck and or shoulder on the left side normally. And you want to go until you feel a tension of about six or seven out of 10. So definitely noticeable tension, but don't overdo it. And as you do this, you want to exhale. So you're exhaling as you feel that tension of stretch. You're going to hold that for no more than a few seconds like two or three. And then you're going to inhale for three seconds. And as you inhale, you're going to push your head into your hand, trying to move your head towards your left shoulder. But your hand is going to resist this force and not let your head move. So this is an isometric muscle contraction. And then you're going to exhale and stop contracting and relax and feel if the muscle gets longer. And as you exhale, you're going to exhale for about another three seconds. So total of about nine seconds maximum. Why? Because there are a lot of muscle spindles in the neck extensors and neck muscles, and we don't want to do too much work there. We don't want to hold for too long because it stresses out the muscles too much and they kind of lose it. It's just too much load. Neck extensors or neck musculature is very sensitive because when we went from quadruped to biped, we took a huge risk. We put ourselves upright in this unstable position and we narrowed the base of support. We took away two of our limbs and we used them up high to do things like throw spears or flip people off or drive cars 
or give them hugs. We'll say it that way. And in order to do that, we had to orient ourselves to the horizon and make sure that we don't fall over and break a femur or a pelvis. Because if we do, we're dead to the tribe or we're a hyena's neck. So our vestibular system had to be highly adaptive and very acute. And our neck muscles have to be very responsive and very proprioceptively active to make sure that our head can stay still while we move over bumpy terrain. By the way, this is why when you watch someone cycle, if their head bobs around too much, it doesn't look right. Think about that for a minute. So what does that tell you about their core musculature or their vestibular acuity, right? Okay. So this is daily. We need to extend our, we need to, to mobilize and, ex, uh, thinking we need to mobilize our neck extensors. I would say daily, especially for those of us who have shoulders that become elevated towards our ears. And for those of us who sit with our chins very forward on the bike and have forward head posture. Muy importante. Claro. The next one, which I'll group with the neck is the pec minor stretch. You can use a door frame for this and you use one. You want to use a contract relaxed method for the pec minor. Why? The pec minor is probably the single most short and tight or hyper facilitated muscle in protraction of the shoulder, which is very common. Anytime we drive anything for a living cars, keyboards, bicycles, or we do a combination of those things, we tend to reach forward with our shoulder. And when we reach forward with the shoulder, we shorten our pec minor and we lengthen the muscles on the back of the shoulder. That is the muscles that stabilize the scapula. So all those muscles in the backside of the body become long and a bit loose. And the muscles in the front side become a little bit tight, specifically pec minor. So I'm not going to go through and describe each of these in detail. That's going to be too long and not really constructive. I will at some point begin to produce some video content for this and put it on my channel. That's cycling in alignment on YouTube. Duh. But you know, in the world of the Googles or the YouTubes, don't use Google. Use another search engine, go to YouTube and search pec minor stretch and feel it, understand it, use it, right? Uh, better yet, search for PNF stretching or contract relaxed stretch pec minor. PNF stands for proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, which is basically contract relaxed stretching, right? You put the muscle under some stretch, then holding it so it can't move, you fire the muscle while it's in that stretched position and you're inhaling, then you relax and feel the muscle grow longer. This has to do with how the golden Golgi tendon organ regulates muscle tension during the sensation of stretch. And really what we're doing is just playing with that interface to allow the muscle to stretch by applying stretch while it's first contracted. And then we let it relax. So it's sort of reestablishing the parameters of how the muscle should behave. If you do this right and regularly, you can feel the muscle get longer in the actual session. It's not like a normal stretching concept where you're stretching for three weeks and then you notice that you're, you're a little bit deeper in the stretch. This actually happens during the exhale. You feel it get longer and it changes the tone of your muscle. 
because it relaxes the muscle. So this is really powerful. People ask me, usually at this point when I'm teaching them this, should I do this before or after my ride? Is it okay to do this before my ride? Yes, this is actually good to do before your ride because you don't want to get on the bike with a bunch of tight muscles or hypofacilitated muscles. Think about it like a wheel. Your wheel's out of true. The rim is wobbly. What are the characteristics of this wheel? If it's out of true and wobbly, some spokes are probably too tight and some are too loose. So if we take it to the mechanic and the mechanic tightens all the spokes, that doesn't get us anywhere because he'll over tighten the tight spokes and bring the loose spokes close to optimal tension, but your rim will still be wobbly. This is what human beings are. They are wobbly rims. Likewise, if we loosen all the spokes, then we also don't get anywhere because the spokes that are way too tight end up about the right tension, but the loose ones end up extra loose and floppy. And then the system loses tensegrity, which is tension and integrity of a complete system. If I'm not mistaken, Buckminster Fuller came up with that term. Also, the guy that the buckyball was named after. So when we have a system that has the proper tension for all the elements, it becomes an object that has a lot more strength and resilience than the individual components do on their own. If you're picked up a spoke, it's just a flimsy piece of wire, but you put 32 of them or 28 of them in the right order and the right circle, and you attach a rim and a hub and you tension everything, then all of a sudden that structure has all this marvelous strength. It can go around corners and go over potholes and run over small cats and speed bumps. Hopefully you're not running over too many small cats. Probably wouldn't be good for the cat. So this is how the body works. And when we have spokes that are too tight, i.e. muscles that are hyper facilitated, and we go ride our bike, it's like riding on untrue wheels. We want to true our wheel before we ride our bike, not after. So should you do PNF stretching before your rides? Yes. Okay. The next one is a prone Cobra. And this is more of a an exercise than a PNF stretch, but it does involve muscle activation. So you're going to lay on your stomach on the ground. You're going to put your feet together and knees together. You're going to point your toes away from you. You're going to put your ankles together. You're going to put your chin straight on the ground. So your nose is slightly mushed into your yoga mat or carpet, and your arms are going to be at your side. And you're going to turn your hands into supination which means external rotation, which means you're going to point your thumbs up towards the ceiling like you're hitchhiking. And then you're going to raise your hands off the ground while they're by your sides as high as they will go, keeping your elbows straight. You're also dropping your shoulders down towards your butt and your sternum is going to lift off the ground following your hands. So this is the cobra part. So your sternum is lifted off the ground your hands are lifted up towards the sky. Your thumbs are rotating out towards the ceiling as far as you can. Maximal rotation, maximal supination. So your elbows should almost be pointing up towards the ceiling. Not internal rotation, external. This is really important. Like you're hitchhiking or holding a can of soup if you were standing upright. And you're holding this position statically. Now, a few other really important points. Keep your knees and ankles together. Also, 
when people lift their sternum off the ground because they're bike racers and we tend to ride around with our chins poking forward and always verticalizing our faces while we ride, we don't need to undo the neck extensor stretch we just did by putting a bunch of tension in our neck. So I modify this pose for my clients and I ask them to drop their chin towards their chest, making the back of the neck as long as possible. And this will be challenging and annoying for you probably because you're not used to being in that position. But I think this is a critical modification for cyclists. Now here's the punchline. We want to hold this pose for a minimum of three minutes of time under tension. If you want to add difficulty, you can lift your feet off the ground one inch. So now your entire back body is like a bow. What we're activating here is the superficial back line in the world of Thomas Myers. And we are tonically activating, sorry, we are isometrically activating these muscles, which are mostly tonic in nature, mostly slow twitch, which is why we want to keep this tension for three minutes. Now, if you can't hold this pose for three minutes while you're breathing and laying on the ground, then you can break it down into sets or rather, excuse me, reps of 30 seconds, 45 seconds, one minute, whatever. So do 30 seconds and rest for five or 10 seconds, and then do another 30 seconds and rest for 10 seconds and work until you have a total of three minutes of time under tension and try to keep the rest interval short. Basically, as soon as you go again, go again. And when you build up to three minutes or really the range is three to five minutes, then you know you're getting somewhere and you can do it less frequently, but still regularly. I work this pose quite often. I also use a full bridge pose which is more advanced. For those of you who don't know what that is, you can go forth and search. Maybe I'll do some videos on that. But prone cobra is essential for cyclists because it undoes, unwinds, and conditions in a good way the muscles that are tight and, uh, excuse me, long and loose on the backside of the body and also under-conditioned. So what we're doing is when we pull our hands towards the ceiling and we pull our shoulders towards our butt, and make that bow position with our spine, we are conditioning the muscles that depress and retract the scapula, which is the opposite of what most people's scapulae do, scapulae do during riding. Scapula is your shoulder blade, commonly referred to as your shoulder blade in case you weren't sure. And this may seem like, yeah, who cares? Like, I want to stretch my quads and my hamstrings, bro, because that's what hurts. Get with it, Pierce. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, just to plant a seed quickly here, when someone has lower back pain or hip pain on the bike, especially if it's on one side more than the other, which it typically is, there's almost universally a connection to the contralateral shoulder in terms of either tightness or instability. Usually it's instability. So there, that's what's up we have to consider the body as a complex unit in which all the respective joints and muscles interrelate with each other because that is how it actually is. This is correct. So if you have chronic low back pain or hip pain on one side or even knee pain and you're not looking at the opposite shoulder, you're not really looking at the whole picture, you're just looking in your own zip code, 
And if there's one thing Western medical science has taught us is that looking in your own zip code only does fuck all to heal the human body. Pardon my Frances, but this is some bullshit here. We have to look globally and I will unleash some soapbox material on this in future podcasts. So keep your britches on because I'm going to light that shit on fire. Okay. Hips. You need to stretch your anterior hip capsule. We can do this with a lunge and we can do two twofers. Twofers Tuesday. God, that was terrible. I'm sorry. Please ignore that. Pretend I never said that. That was an awful thing to say. Next thing you know, I'm going to be quoting Bloomin' Onion commercials. And then you can shoot me. So when we do a deep lunge stretch, we can elevate the front foot to get the hip more involved. When we're on a carpet or yoga mat, we're also getting the front hip and the opposite side anterior hip capsule. What do I mean by that? I mean, basically the area right under your hip bone, which is your anterior superior iliac spine. That's your, that's your, your hip bone. That's what people call your hip bones. The front part, the bony part of your hip that sticks out that would sort of dig into a hardwood floor. If you laid face down on a hardwood floor, if you're well, not for everybody, but for some bony people. Now, if you can't feel your ASIS hitting the floor and you lay down on a hardwood floor, even if you pull your heels back towards your butt, you probably have really tight hips and quads and you need this stretch. So we can use a deep lunge stretch and then you can pull. So if you're lunging with your right leg forward, you can also then pull the left foot towards your left butt cheek. Now, if you can't reach back and do that because you're way too tight, cool. Here's where you get to use a strap or maybe a belt and just put it around your foot and then pull. And we're going to use the same contract, relaxed method. Now you can contract and relax the left foot or rather quad to extend the knee. So you're going to pull that foot back towards your butt until you feel stretch in the quad or the hip. Don't worry about which one, wherever it shows up is where you need it. She gives you what you need, not what you want. And then you're going to feel some tension in there. And then you're going to inhale and kick the foot away from your butt as you pull on the foot or strap or band to prevent movement. So it's an isometric movement, but the muscles are under tension. And then as you exhale, you're going to feel the muscle relax and go deeper. Now, one thing I forgot to, to mention, when we're doing the neck extensor contract, relax, stretch, maximum total time is nine seconds. Then you go to the other side, you can do that side, then you rest for a minute or two, and then you can do another round if you want. Maybe two or three rounds tops. Be gentle with the neck. The other, All the other muscles in the body are more durable and a little more robust as far as that goes because they've got less muscle spindles per gram of muscle tissue. So of total muscle volume. So what we can do with the quad is a more aggressive six second initial stretch, then a six second X inhale, and then a six second exhale. And then you can kind of shake it out, switch sides if you want, but you can go back and forth two, three times on each side. Now you can do the same thing with the lunge. So we're getting the anterior hip capsule. That's the front side of your hip and your quads on one side, on, in my example, on the left side, and then you can do a contract relax with the lunge on the other side. It's the same idea. 
you just drop your hip down towards the ground until you feel a nice stretch in the glute or the hamstring or the hip, wherever you feel it. And then as you inhale, you're going to push that foot into the ground to tension all those muscles. And then in your exhale, you should be able to drop the hip a bit lower towards the ground, right? Got it? Good. I would say the other hip exercise that's daily is going to be a 90-90 stretch. So I will drop a link to Paul's video on 90-90 in the podcast notes. But basically, you're sitting on the ground with one hip in internal rotation and the other hip in external rotation. So if you're sitting on the ground, nice and tall, with your feet flat on the ground and your knees bent at 90 degrees straight in front of you. Then you can take your legs and just drop them to one side. Plop. So if you drop both legs to the left, your left leg will be in internal rotation. Your thigh is in internal rotation and your right thigh will be in external rotation. So now you want to make, you'll have to spread the distance between your feet a little bit. So we have a 90 degree angle at the left knee, a 90 degree angle at the right knee, and a 90 degree angle between the thighs at your crotch. Then you want to center yourself over your pubic bone. So put your sternum, the center of your chest, over your pubic bone. That's your junk. And notice that some people can't really sit upright there. You might feel a twist in your spine or a lot of tension in one hip. People are sometimes surprised at how much tension they feel in this pose. And now you can windshield wiper your legs over to the other side. So you're going to take your right knee and lift it up and then plop it over to the right. At the same time, you're going to take your left knee and lift it up and plop it over to the right. Bloop, bloop. Then usually you have to move your feet apart a little bit to get that 90, 90, 90 relationship. 90 at the left knee, 90 at the right knee, 90 at the groin and center your sternum over your pubic bone. That is, put the center of your chest over your belly button and over your junk. And you can see or feel how vertical your torso can be in this position. And what you might reach down and feel is your ischial tuberosities, commonly referred to in the cycling world as your sits bones or your sit bones, depending on which fitter you're talking to. Don't you love colloquialisms? They're so insightful and they give us so much to talk about and feel with your fingers underneath. So in this position with your right knee to the right, that's an internal rotation and your left knee to the right, that's external rotation. Nope. I said that backwards. Right knee to the right would be external. Left knee to the right would be internal. You're probably going to feel your left ischial tuberosity is a little further off the ground than your right because most of us have better external rotation than internal. That would be normal. But some people have atrocious internal rotation, which might lead us to believe that they are quote unquote trapped in external rotation, which can mean that their knees flail out at the top of the pedal stroke or at other random times, depending on many factors of bike fit. So this 90-90, initially we're just using this diagnostically, but then you can begin to rotate the sacrum over the knees. 
and usually you would do it over the, in the last example I gave, you would do it over the right shin. And your playground is between the right foot and the right knee. So you can kind of go with your sternum towards the right foot. You can go with your sternum towards the right knee or somewhere in between about the middle of the, the shin, the lower leg. And you can make it look fancy maybe by dropping your chest down to that leg, but really the objective is to rotate your pelvis forward towards the leg, not your back, not flex your back. You want to keep your back straight and roll the pelvis forward. And that'll get a nice deep stretch. So we can begin to go back and forth. We can do a 90-90 stretch to the left and then windshield wiper over to the right and then to the left. And we can exhale as our chest approaches the forward lower leg and then inhale at the top and then windshield wiper our legs over and then exhale as our sternum approaches the leg on the other side. So if you kind of followed this with my verbal cues, this one's reasonably complicated. So if you got lost, it's okay. Don't stress out. I'll send a link to Paul Check's 99 video. It's quite good. And then I'll do one myself with my own little tweaks. And I love this as a pre-ride mobilization. And I'll explain the progressions of this exercise and the regressions if it's challenging. But this one's essential. Why? Because it works internal and external rotation of both hips. Why do we care? Because cycling moves only in the sagittal plane. And as Mike Salemi once famously said, you are most likely to get injured in the plane in which you do not move. So we're working in the frontal and transverse planes on the hips in this movement and a little bit in the sagittal, but mostly in the other one. We're probably working in all three planes, really, depending on the athlete. So we have to move in other planes of, mo of motion, right? And the last one is diaphragm, but I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger because I think this one actually does require a video. I'll, I'll try a good basic exercise for diaphragm stretching. Perfect world, you're sitting on a stability ball, otherwise known as a Swiss ball, otherwise known as a big bouncy ball, otherwise known as my office chair that I'm sitting on right now. And you want to sit upright and put your feet about shoulders width apart. And then you want to just work the diaphragm. This one's less of a mobilization and more of a playful stretch. There aren't a lot of parameters to it but you want to work with the inhale and exhale because of course the diaphragm is the primary muscle of inspiration. And you want to be gentle at first, especially if this area is tender and you've never worked this before because you're poking around in your abdomen and it's really important to have a loose diaphragm. But if you've never worked on this tissue before, it can be quite delicate. So don't make yourself sore. Don't do anything that hurts, but explore. And so as you're sitting upright, you want to take your fingers to both hands and put them under your bottom ribs on the front side of your body and kind of wrap your fingers under the ribs and explore, go towards the midline, go towards the sides, go back towards the midline, go towards the sides. Now just leave your fingers kind of in the middle of those bottom ribs and dig them under there pretty good, not excessively. Don't hurt yourself. And then take a few deep breaths, inhale. And when you do feel your ribs growing and expanding and then exhale, feel the shape of the diaphragm. The diaphragm attaches right under those ribs. Inhale and then exhale. Feel how when you inhale, you might feel some tension in your diaphragm as you inhale and as you push your fingers under those ribs. 
So we're just using the pressure of our fingers to expand that diaphragm, right? And then you can play with a gentle side bend while your fingers are under those ribs or a general forward bend or extension of the back and play with different rhythms of inhales and exhales. And we just want to gently mobilize and loosen. Now, understand that the diaphragm, of course, also wraps around the backside of the torso. It's not only about the front, it's about the sides. So then dig your fingers into the side of your torso and side bend and then inhale and exhale and side bend and inhale and exhale. Nice and slow, right? Six seconds in, six seconds out, repeat. And then you can dig your thumbs into the ribs in the backside. And we want to play with that a little bit. And when you, if things are going well and you inhale, you should feel your bottom ribs on the backside of your body expand. This is ultimately the goal of effective breathing. One method of very effective breathing, we'll say there are lots, is when you inhale, we want to feel those bottom ribs expand in all directions, 365 degrees. We want to feel the front ribs pop out the side ribs pop out. That's excursion of the, of the ribs on the side and the posterior ribs, the backside ribs. We want to feel those move and get bigger. We want that whole ring to get bigger. So if you put your fingers around your diaphragm, that is around the bottom ribs. So fingers are in front and the palms are right on the sides and the thumbs are in back and then inhale and then exhale and feel the shape change of those ribs. Now, here's a little anatomy trivia for you, quiz rather, knowledge. The crua of the diaphragm, which are kind of like long fingers, reach down and, attra uh, and attach to the second and third lumbar vertebra. That's L3 and L2. And in case you don't know, there are five lumbar vertebra and they go from one to five vertically starting at the top and going down. So the lowermost vertebra is L5. And that junction below that fifth vertebra is called L5S1. That's your lowest vertebra of your spine. And then below that is the sacrum. That's S1. It's called, it's uh, they call it S1, but it's a sacrum. The sacrum is one bone, but they consider that it's effectively fused joints of a spine a prehistoric dinosaur spine or something like that. So most commonly people experience back problems with their discs around L5S1 or L4, L5. This is the problem area. It's basically the bottom of your spine. And this is why core recruitment is so crucial. It helps protect our spine under load, ensuring proper movement patterns and force transfer when we do all the things like sit in chairs or ride bikes or lift cars off of small children. So when we activate the diaphragm and it has tension, the crew of the diaphragm attach to the second and third lumbar vertebra and they pull them up. What does this do? It decompresses L4 and L5, which are below L2 and L3. So what I'm saying is when we have proper recruitment of the diaphragm, that is we use the diaphragm correctly during intense efforts, whether it's in the gym or lifting a car off a small child or picking up a 
three-gallon glass of local spring water to put it on our water distributor vessel, whatever that thing's called. When we use proper form and we brace the abdominals under that load and the diaphragm contracts and pulls the second and third lumbar vertebra superiorly, that is upward, we decompress the discs in L4 and L5. And in case you didn't know, the problem comes when those discs are compressed, when they're smashed. When L4 and L5 get smashed together, then the disc becomes dehydrated. And if it really gets smashed, then the disc gets squished and it starts to squish out of its little container and hit nerves. And then you get pain and numbness and all the problems. So when we properly use our diaphragm, we are co-opting L4 and L5. We are releasing pressure on them. We are decompressing them and allowing fluid to come back in. Hydration of tissues is essential. That's why I'm always encouraging my clients to drink more healthy water, local spring water. So we want to be in touch with our diaphragm and we want to have it function properly and be loose and strong and capable. That's what's up. So there's a little, that's a very loosely structured exercise to help you stretch your diaphragm out. But I think this is good daily practice. Um, in my experience, a lot of cyclists have diaphragms that are just sort of locked up in like pieces of wood. So we want to get some movement in that part of the body. We don't move our spines much as cyclists. So I have a whole list of other essential exercises that should be done at least once a week. Another one is a spinal wave. We've got all kinds of ways to move the spine. I will definitely do a video for the spinal wave and try to produce some more content for you guys. But those are some good basics for right now. You must move. You must love each other and treat others as you would have them treat you. And you must move off the bike. You have to move the body. In case I didn't make this connection earlier, I have so many clients who come to me who are so they're struggling because they're in pain and they love cycling. And it's one of the outlets they have to help keep them healthy and keep the weight manageable and have time for themselves. And then if their body starts to not be able to handle cycling because of pain, then they lose that tool and they're really suffering because of that. So I don't want to overstate the importance of my job. Like I know I'm not building, you know, toilets and giving poor people clean water and stuff, which arguably is more fundamental and important but I do my best to help people with their lives and their challenges. And this is one way I can do that. So I really feel that people need to understand that just cycling usually will lead to physical challenge. We have to move off the bike and people come to me all the time and sort of are exacerbated because, or exacerbated, they are exasperated because they are at their wits end. They've, every time they ride, they've got pain. And this is hard for me to see, you know, I don't want to see this, but I have to educate my clients about the fact that they must do more than simply cycle. Cycling is not the altar upon which we worship and condition the human body. It is a Victorian era contraption that will mess your shit up over a long enough timeline. It's a magnificent machine. Like I will freely beat up on cycling because I have also worship it at the same time in my own way. But let me just leave you with this final thought. I raced 300 plus mile races this year. I did 
sea otter mountain bike. That wasn't hundred miles. That was like 68 K or some something, but it was like five hours. So pretty long. And then I did the unbound 100 and then I did steamboat. And I won't use this N of one to drop some earth shattering conclusion, right? This is anecdotal evidence, of course, but I think it's relevant because I struggled my whole career with lower back pain, not excruciating, debilitating back pain, but it was persistent, common back pain. And there were races where it was the limiting factor, no question. In particular, when I went from road to either cyclocross or mountain bike, I was a train wreck. And there were races that were absolutely limited by back pain. The ceiling was the back pain without question. And I do not have that anymore. There was a period of time when I couldn't run for more. There were some times where I couldn't run for more than 10 minutes without knee pain and lower back pain and hip pain. That does not exist anymore. I'm not lifting heavy weights. I'm not deadlifting a million pounds. I'm not squatting. I'm not on any leg press machine. God forbid. No machines ever, in case you were wondering. Never, ever. But I am capable of jumping in a seven-hour bike race or a 12-hour bike ride, which I did about three weeks ago. I rode from Denver to Breckenridge with a friend of mine. I had no pain had general fatigue. Sure. My legs hurt because we've been riding a long time, but I didn't have back pain. I didn't have quad pain. I didn't have hamstring pain. I had no pain. So I consider myself a success story and testament to the fact that if we move regularly off the bike, we can move the dial on this problem. Now it's an N of one. I also eat better. I sleep better. I hydrate more frequently. I eat not only better quality food, but the right content, the right nutrient density. I don't drink a lot. I hardly drink any, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of things that I've changed in my lifestyle that move the dial on this, but being able to move my body in different ways is absolutely contributed. So for whatever that's worth, I'm really not trying to blow sunshine out my own skirt here or pat myself on the back. That's not the point of, of what I'm saying. I'm hopefully illustrating for you that it's possible to pave the way to more functional cycling and better health by simply looking after your body with these basic things. We're talking 10 minutes a day tops and a solid session of 45 minutes once a week. That's ideal. That's what I got. Stay tuned for more info. I'm getting ready for bed. Love you all. Ride consciously breathe consciously, be loving to each other. Thank you for listening. Peace out. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers, a lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. 
And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.